Gracious Lord, that uh, you'd open our hearts today to your word and to these words that are spoken, to receive from the Holy Spirit what you would have us hear, and that all that is done here in song and prayer and in spoken word be pleasing to you and from your Holy Spirit. In Christ we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to start with a quiz this morning. How many of you, by show of hands, still have your Christmas tree up? All right, not a lot of you, but a few, a few. I ask you that because today is Epiphany. And that's a word and a celebration that for some of you is familiar, and for some of you, you hear it, or maybe have never heard it before, you have no idea what that means. And we're going to talk about what that means in a moment. But one of the kind of unofficial, well, actually I wouldn't even say unofficial, official realities of Epiphany is that in the Christian calendar, it is kind of the end of the Christmas season. It's the Sunday and the day that follows after the 12th day of Christmas, you know, the song. There's actually a purpose behind this, well, I don't know the purpose behind the song, but there's 12 days of Christmas. It's between Christmas Day and, and Epiphany. And so the season is officially over. So now, if your Christmas tree is up, you are just getting a head start on next year. So congratulations to you. <laughs> I tried to keep ours up for the very same reason, but I lost. Now, here's the other question I have for you, a little poll. We had this, um, I wouldn't say dilemma, but we had this decision when we were decorating for Christmas here in the sanctuary because they, they put the big tree up that we had here, and we realized that we had two tree toppers. We had a star and an angel. I don't know where the, and I don't ever remember the angel from years past, but we had both. And so I'm curious, first of all, anybody know what we had on the top of the tree? Do you remember? Nah, it was a star. It was a star. It was the star. And I think that was because that was the first one we grabbed and put up. But this is what I'm curious about. In your, on your Christmas trees, how many of you have a star at the top of your Christmas tree? Okay. How many of you have an angel at the top? Well, you guys really leaned angels in here. Surprising, but... Um. <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> It's, it's an interesting, and, and whichever you have is good. It, it makes no difference what you put at the top of, of your tree, star angel or any, well, I shouldn't say anything else, but star angel. But it's an interesting, I think, um, image for us because they represent the two ways that the story was, was announced, the birth was announced, if you will, if, if we can call us the star an announcement. Uh, certainly, we're, we're familiar with the angels, the angels that appear to the, to the shepherds, the angels that let them know that this promise that they have been waiting for, because the shepherds are part of the Jewish community, so they've heard the prophecy, they've waited for the Messiah, and the angel says to them, it's happened, it's here, he has been born, and kind of instructs them that they may go and worship. So, so the angel represents part of the announcement of the story. But so does the star. And the star is what guides the focal characters of, of the text this morning, and that is the wise men. And, and they're part of the central story that we celebrated, Epiphany. Let me come back to Epiphany. Epiphany means uh, manifestation. And it is the, the day in which as the church, at least the church in the West, celebrates the manifestation of the birth of Christ, the coming of, of God in flesh, the Christ child, 
to the Gentile community, to those who were outside the Jewish faith. And that, for us, is represented by the coming of, of the wise men. They are um, the, the outsiders in, in your story, in the text this morning, in the sermon title. They're the, the unexpected guests. Um, and, and so they're the representation. Now, it's interesting. Again, we kind of come back to the wise men. And, and I said this a few weeks ago, but, you know, in our nativity scenes that we put up, uh, in our homes and we have here up at church, we always have all the characters. We have Mary and Joseph and Jesus and the animals and the shepherds, and we always have the wise men there. Now, here's the thing. They weren't there. Not that night. They came much after the fact. And we know that, and I won't get into all the reasons, but I'm a preacher, so take my word for it. They came later, okay? They came later. And um, they came. They're part of the story, but, but they... You know, they were, were a little bit after. And um, the, the beauty of their inclusion is, for, for many of us, they're, they're the group that I think we most identify with. And, and let me tell you what I mean. I, one of the, the beauties, the gifts of the scriptures is they're not abstract stories for us. They're not, it's, we don't read Genesis through Revelation, any point in, those, in the scriptures, the way we do a history textbook, detached and distant, as outside observers. Certainly there's history and there are characters and there's stories about people outside of our experience, but it's different. It, you know, I went this week and I saw Lincoln. I don't know if you saw that movie. Wonderful movie. Wonderful movie. You know, we approach that story, and that's outside of us. That's about what happened then. The scriptures we approach very differently because it's not just their story. Scriptures are our story. And when we read the scriptures, we don't read what happened to David or Joseph or, or the apostles or, or any of the characters. We also read it through the lens of where are we in the story. We're there every time you're somewhere. Sometimes you're more than one place in the scriptures and in the story. The stories represent our realities and our relationship with God and what God has done for us, in us, and through us. So when we, we read this birth story, the, 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 the wise men really for us is where we find ourselves. Because up until their coming into the story, every player, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the others, they're all part of the Jewish community. They're part of the community of God's chosen people that have been waiting for the fulfillment of the prophecy. They understood when an angel appeared and said, today the prophecy has been fulfilled, they got it. Because they'd been waiting for it. They understood something was going to happen. They didn't think it was going to be like this. Don't misunderstand me. Jesus and the way God worked threw them for a curve. But they were waiting for it. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us are not part of, of that, the lineage of Judaism. We're not part of the Jewish community. And the promise as they had understood it was going to be for their people. But when the, the wise men come on the scene, all of a sudden a new reality opens up. All of a sudden, this Jesus, this Christ child, this story is about more than a Savior and a Messiah for a select group of people. The, gent the, 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 the wise men open it up and reveal what the Scriptures are going to proclaim, which is that Jesus came for all people. 
He comes out of the Jewish community, out of the Jewish faith, but he is a Messiah for all people. And so we find ourselves identifying with the wise men. We find ourselves very often in that part and understanding because, well, first of all, how many of them were there? How many wise men? How many think there were three? How many think there were four? How many are scared to death I'm tricking you? Okay. We don't know. We don't know how many there were. But we, we write the song because there were three gifts. We know there's more than one, and there's less than a lot. So, so there's a lot of, there's, there's wise men that come. And for us, that's where we find ourselves. Because let's be honest, the shepherds, they're a wonderful inclusion in the story because it reminds us that this Messiah came for all people. And the shepherds were kind of at the bottom of the social order. Well, when I look around, I don't see a lot of people at the bottom of the social order. We all have our struggles. Don't misunderstand me. But, but the shepherds were kind of the uneducated field workers, the nomads, if you will. It was a rough and dirty life. And, and some of you may identify with that. I don't want to project on everybody's story, but, but that's not most of our stories. Most of us are by world standards, and we've talked about this in weeks past, and Pastor Don have talked about this, um, are, are, um, are wealthy. I mean, we're We're wealthy. Again, not too many of us would categorize ourselves that, but we are. We have enough, as the wise men were. Most of us are, at some level, educated. You know, you are bright people, mostly. Um, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. But, but, but my point is, you know, all of these things, if we're honest, we, we can kind of find ourselves more affiliated with the wise men. And we're outside. You know, when the, when the scriptures and we read the New Testament and we read about the Gentiles, most of us are the Gentiles. That's us. And so we find all these connection points with the wise men. But here's the biggest connection point. They were seekers. They were searching for God. You know, most likely, we don't know exactly where they came from. Most um, scholarship that I read thinks that they were astronomers out of uh, Babylon, which would be modern-day Iraq for us. Some think they were magicians from Persia, which would be modern-day Iran. Some scholarship thinks they came as, from as far as India. The point is we're not really sure. We have a lot of speculation. All we know is they were educated, wealthy, well-off men, and they were from the East. But they knew God was doing something. They believed in a God that was up to something. They just didn't know what. And they knew there was a prophecy, and they knew there was a star, and they had enough wisdom to see something was happening, and they decided, we're going to go on a journey, and we're going to seek out what God is doing. I think many of us find ourselves in life on a journey seeking out what God is doing. We're searching at some level, maybe different places, maybe different ways, but at some level, we are searching for something that we know to be true, but we may not always understand it. You know, nine out of ten Americans believe in God. That surprised me it was that high. Not nine out of ten are Christians or have any one faith, but nine out of ten believe that there is a higher power, there is a God. We're here because at some level we're searching for something. Many of us have come to faith and to believe we have found it in this child, but, but the, 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 the wise men, they're, they're seeking, they're looking. 
And, and that's what epiphany really comes to mean for us, is, is we're looking for God. The question for us is where are we looking? That's really the challenge, is where are we looking? Because these unexpected guests, these kind of out-of-place characters in the story, I, I cannot believe for a second that when they started on their journey, when they packed their camels and they, they put their, their gifts in the bags and they started on this journey from wherever they were coming from, that they could have in a million years guessed where it would lead them. That they would find what God was doing was the birth of a child to a teenage mother and a blue-collar carpenter father from a podunk community called Nazareth, lost in Bethlehem, born in no pomp, no circumstance, very little fanfare, that they believed this is what God would be up to. If we're looking for God, if we're on a journey, the question for us is where are we looking? Or maybe what's our expectations? Where do we expect to find God? Because I believe many of us don't see God don't find God, don't experience God because we're looking in the wrong places. I, Tony and I were talking about this last night and I always try to find a connection point and I was sharing the, the sermon with her and she reminded me of, of um, these glasses that I have. These are, um, I, I guess they'd be my reading glasses. I don't wear them very often. Do I look smart when I put them on? Don't answer that. Um, <laughs> But I, um, I got these years ago because I, um, I learned I had a, a slight issue. I, when I was in college, I um, had to take at the end of, of um, my graduation, I was exploring some different opportunities for postgraduate work and had to take like a four-hour, I don't know if it was the GMAT or the GRE. Some of you are familiar with those kind of standardized um, postgraduate tests. And uh, I had taken the exam it was like four hours long. And so I'd been focused on a, on a piece of paper right here for four hours. And when I got done with the exam, I couldn't get my vision back. I was seeing double of everything. My eyes were crossed over. In fact, I remember I was a youth minister in Haines City at the time. And I can remember driving back to Haines City from Lakeland with a five-speed with my hand on the wheel, one hand over an eye, so that because everything was going this way and that was dangerous. So I was driving and because I couldn't, I couldn't get my vision to straighten out. Long story short, I went to you know, the eye doctor and he just said, you've got a weak muscle in the eye and anytime you focus short for a long period of time, that muscle fatigues and it's not pulling your eye out to line you up for distance. So he said, why don't you get these glasses, use them when you read and when you focus short and he gave me some eye exercises. I don't wear them very often because... I'm smart like that. And, um, and uh, so, but last summer I was wearing them more frequently because I was doing a lot of reading, getting ready to go away to school. So as I'm packing, before I left for Kentucky last August, putting things in the suitcase, going through my checklist, can't find my glasses. I mean, cannot find them anywhere. Now, I believe that a sign of higher intelligence is that you have a place in your home where you put your stuff. A spot where you put your keys, you put your wallet, you put your phone so that you will always know where your stuff is. That's a sign of higher intelligence. By that standard, I am not of higher intelligence because I don't do that. I have a lot of places 
that I put my stuff. It makes it far more interesting every morning. It's like an Easter egg hunt. I get to go look for my things. And so we looked in the four or five places that my stuff randomly is usually to be found. Couldn't find it. So then you start looking in the other expected places to find things you've lost. Under beds, behind bookshelves, in the car, in briefcases, at the office, everywhere. Couldn't find them. I'd remembered I'd had them at the doctor's office a few days before. We called the doctor's office. We said, did you find a pair of, sungla- or a pair of reading glasses? You know how many glasses they have at the doctor's office? <laughs> it's obscene how many. Tony had to describe them, and then they're not here. They weren't there. Long well, sure, we could not find them. So I just left for Kentucky and didn't take them. A few weeks later, Tony calls me on the phone, and she says, you'll never believe it. We found your glasses. I'm like, wow, what out of the place spot did they turn up? And she said, they were on my bedside table. Her bedside table, not mine. On her, they were three feet from us the entire time that we were looking. Now, we still have a great debate as to how those glasses were missed and how we didn't see them or if they were there and whether or not the parsonage is haunted. We're not sure. But, but the point is, I really believe we didn't see them because we didn't expect them to be there. We didn't. That, I, I don't leave my stuff on Tony's bedside table, usually. Um, that's not a place that I'd expect my stuff to be. It, it was right there under our nose, and we, we never saw it because we were just looking in the wrong place. And we all have stories about things we found eventually that we've missed because we were looking in the wrong place. You know, when I think about the birth of Jesus, when I think about the life of Jesus, when I think about the ministry of Jesus, I think about how many people were right there that missed him because they were looking in the wrong place. How many people in Bethlehem were were a house or a spot or a block away from the birth of the Christ child that never saw him because they weren't looking in the right place? In the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, how many people heard him speak, saw his miracles, witnessed his mercy, and didn't recognize who he was because they were looking for God in the wrong places? Paul would say that the cross of Christ... It's foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews because God doesn't work that way because they're looking for God in different places. How many of us hunger to see God, to experience God, to feel God, but we don't? And I think sometimes it's because we're looking for God in the wrong places. We love the God of the miraculous and the mighty and the significant. And God is in those places. Sometimes we miss him in the ordinary and the everyday. You know how I know we do this? You know how I know we do this? I want you to think about in the church, whose testimonies, stories do we love to hear most? Uh, We celebrate the star athlete that comes to faith in his or her testimony. We love the, the businessman or woman who has made it big in the Fortune 500 companies who tells their stories of faith. We love the stories of the celebrities that come to faith. And I'm not, criti- those are good stories. But how often do we miss just as powerful a story of the blue-collar worker, the man or the woman that every day pours themselves into their job and their life and their family and has had their heart changed by Jesus Christ but just doesn't have a lot of zeros in their bank account to show for it? How often do we miss the everyday 
manifestations of God in the, the activities of, of the kids running around and the, the experiences of our lives because we're just, we're looking in other places. The story of Christmas, the story of Christ, reminds us that, that not only do unexpected guests come, but they meet God in very unexpected places. The wise men couldn't have fathomed where their journey was going to lead them. But here's what I find so powerful about their testimony. That when these wealthy, educated, noble men from wherever they were from, when they came to the child, when they came to that place, ordinary and everyday, that nondescript carpenter and that everyday teenage mother, when they came to the child, the scriptures say they did what? They bowed and they worshiped him because they recognized God was there. I don't know where you're looking for God, but I wonder how often we miss him because we're not expecting the unexpected because very often that's where God is. He reminds us, you find me not in what you achieve, but what you give. You find me when you care for the needy, you love the unlovable, you clothe the naked, you feed the hungry. I think God's found, certainly in the powerful and the high places. I think often we miss him in the conversations with our neighbors, the encounters at the store, the interaction with our kids. Where are you looking for God? I guess that's the question today. Where are you Epiphany, manifestation. We, we want God to be real, but where are you looking And is it possible he's right in front of you and your eyes are fixed in the wrong places? The magi, the wise men, they were unexpected guests, but they recognized that God met them in unexpected places. I wonder for you and for me, do we recognize the same? Let us pray.